0: I want you to imagine a man for a moment, a husband. He's got a great job, puts his wife in a nice house. He and his wife drive new cars. They wear designer clothes, always fashionable. You're always impressed as he talks to his wife because he always uses terms of endearment. Dear, sweetheart, beautiful, love of my life. Of course, you were shocked one day when you were out playing golf with him and he received a phone call from his wife and he said, love of my life, you know that nothing is more important to me than golf. You can call the plumber yourself. Don't bother me for the next two hours. Goodbye, sweetheart. I love you. He read Gary Smalley's book and learned that his Wife needs five non-sexual touches every day. He goes for six because he wants to make sure in case he miscounted. He got that chain email about that couple that always hid little love notes all around the house and in the lunchboxes and that sort of thing. And so beautifully, every day, he leaves a little love note behind. In fact, one day, you were over at their house when the wife found the note that said, see how much I love you. And don't forget to take my suit to the dry cleaners today or you'll be sorry. He's read Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. He knows that his wife is an active service person and so dutifully, he washes the dishes at least three times a week. He takes the trash out without being asked. That's a miracle alone right there. And he always does a load of laundry every day before he goes to work. Well, that is, on the days when he didn't just stay at work overnight, which is getting more and more frequent. He also likes to get really nice gifts for his life, especially on those special days, birthday, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas. Just gets the nicest gifts. And even sometimes he'll bring home just mementos on, on days that don't mean anything. He especially buys nice gifts on those days when after he and his wife got in a fight, he slapped her. And he promised his wife that he would never leave without saying, I love you. And so every time he leaves the house, he walks up and gives her a kiss and says, I love you. And sometimes he even says that when he's storming out of the house because they've had a fight and he's accused her of being an idiot and a worthless mother and a pain in the neck. And he especially makes sure that he goes up and gives her a kiss and says, I love you when he's on the way out the door to go meet his mistress for an afternoon tryst. Are you beginning to see that there's a problem with this husband? He's getting some of the details right. He's doing some of those minor things that just kind of add to the marriage, but he's missing the big picture. You see, God didn't tell him to get the details right. God told him to love his wife in Ephesians five twenty five. God told him to live with his wife in an understanding way in first Peter chapter three and verse seven. But he's focusing on those little details. In fact, the one trip that he and his wife took to the marriage council, he spent the whole time talking to the counselor about all these wonderful little things that he does for his wife, even though he doesn't like her, and how she just doesn't appreciate it. But that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem. God didn't command those details. God commanded love. Now, in that relationship of husband and wife, we recognize how ridiculous that is. There's a real problem here. The question I have this morning is, is it possible that we can and sometimes do the same thing in our relationship with God? Is there a danger of getting some of the details right but missing the big picture? People do that. Jesus knew people who do that, and Jesus thought it was so important that He left for us a warning for all time against it in Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I want us to spend just a few moments this morning talking about that, straining out gnats while swallowing camels and what Jesus is teaching us here and how we can make sure to examine ourselves and strive not to do this exact same thing. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you so much because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God. You have lifted us up You have saved us, you have redeemed us and forgiven us. We are humbled in your presence. We're here this morning because we are so thankful to you. We pray, Father, that you will continue to strengthen us. Please accept our thanks and our offerings of worship. Please accept our service to you throughout the week. Please, Father, help us to grow so that we can be stronger at that. Father, this morning we pray that you would help us to strain out the camels and not simply strain out the gnats. Help us, Father, to understand the weightier matters of your will and to keep the proper emphasis and focus on those things. Help us not to misunderstand the text that you've given here and not to misapply it, but rather to accurately recognize your will so that we can glorify and honor you in the way that you would have us. Not unto us, O O Lord, be the glory, but unto you and to your name. Father, I pray that you would help me as I preach this morning that I will have the proper attitude and that this lesson will be about you, not about me. It will be about you and not about us. And help us to take these lessons that we hear, if they're right and holy, and apply them to our lives. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. We love you. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Now have to get started, I, I, do, I do have to give props. Uh, I've been studying this passage because a couple of weeks ago I got to go hear Shane Scott preach down at Rolling Hills. And I have to admit that because Mark Townsley was there that night too. And so some of the things that I'm going to be sharing with you, were prompted by hearing that lesson, and I've studied based upon that, and I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to Shane and, and give recognition for that. So Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 24, again, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Before we take a look at what this passage really does teach us, there's one thing that we need to recognize that it does not teach us. It does not teach us that we're supposed to strain out camel and swallow gnats. Jesus does demonstrate that we are, of course, supposed to strain out the nets. There in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, he said, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He didn't say these you ought to have done and you could have neglected the others. He said these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. We're supposed to strain out camels and we're supposed to strain out the gnats, these small little things. He's not saying don't worry about the minor details. All of God's Word is important. And that is exactly What Jesus is teaching us here, all of God's Word is important. See, under the Old Covenant, when it came to tithing, generally the tithing referred to the big things, livestock, the fruit of your field. In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 14, Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 22 you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and before the Lord your God and the place that He will choose to make His name dwell there. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That's generally what the Old Testament talks about with tithing, livestock, and harvest. But there is one verse in Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30, God said, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. The Pharisees and the scribes seemingly have anchored on that verse, even down to the seeds. It's not just about the harvest and the livestock, but even down to the seeds even down to the kitchen spices. We're going to make sure to count out one out of every ten, and we're going to devote that to the Lord. It's very easy to see how some folks might have told the Pharisees, oh, come on, you don't have to worry about that. That's such a minor detail. Oh, God doesn't really care about that. We're, we're tithing the big things. We're getting the big things done. But Jesus demonstrated that all of God's Word is important. Psalm 119 Verse 160. Psalm 119, verse 160. God said there, The psalm of your word is true, and every word of your righteous rules endures forever. And Jesus demonstrates that. You ought to have done this without neglecting the others. The fact is, when the Pharisees looked in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 20, verse 20 through 24, It said, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours you may eat those who have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. And we all said, oh Lord, thank you for allowing us to eat locusts and grasshoppers. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you, and by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. God demonstrated that, yes, even the gnats can defile us. And Jesus said, Strain out the gnats. This text is not saying, Strain the camels and swallow the gnats. We need to understand that. However, what Jesus does say is that straining out the camels is more important than straining out the If You look back in Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, this time in verse 4. God into the Old Covenant said, Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. This picture of gnat and camel was actually a picture that the Jews would readily recognize and understand, and it would mean something very important to them, because what they would envision in their mind is somebody who has sat down to a meal, and they've got their cup, and they've placed a cloth over the cup so they can drink their drink through that cloth, and it'll strain out the gnats and the unclean sediment inside, but then they sharpen up their knife to dig into a nice piece of camel. That just doesn't make any sense at all. We'll go to all this trouble to get this minor little tiny detail, but then allow this huge thing to go by without our notice. And what Jesus says is we must not swallow camels while straining out the gnats. He says there are weightier matters of the law. Hone in on that in verse 23. This is a bit shocking to me. I understand the part where Jesus demonstrates that all of God's Word is important. But there's something here that's a bit counterintuitive to me. It's a bit shocking to me because what Jesus does say is that there are some parts of God's Word that are more important. There are parts that deserve more weight and more emphasis. And we need to make sure to give them that emphasis and that weight and that priority in our teaching and in our action. He says that there are weightier matters, and that means there are lighter matters. This really shouldn't have shocked the Jews who were hearing this. God has actually said this all along. Look in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, God said, "...for I desire steadfast love..." and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, did God want sacrifices and burnt offerings? Of course He did. God commanded sacrifices and burnt offerings. But God demonstrates here there was something that was more important. He didn't want sacrifices and burnt offerings. He wanted loving kindness. He wanted mercy. He wanted people to know Him. He wanted that more than He wanted sacrifices and burnt offerings. Look in Micah, also chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Those three statements that he says that he wants more than gifts and offerings. Do you think tithing might fit in that, gifts and offerings? You want to come with gifts, offerings? He says, here's what I want. I want justice. I want you to love kindness, and I want you to walk humbly with your God. Doesn't that mirror, I want justice, I want mercy, kindness, and I want faithfulness to walk humbly with God? In Psalm 15, Psalm 15, the psalmist asks the question, Who will dwell on your holy hill? Who will live in your tent? And in verse 2, he begins to answer it. This is Psalm 15, verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. As he answers, who will dwell in God's tent, who will dwell on God's holy hill? I want you to notice, he hits things that deal with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice. He wants people who don't speak slander with their tongue, they don't do evil to their neighbors, and they don't take a bribe against the innocent. He wants mercy. He wants people that don't take up reproaches against friends. He wants people who, who wouldn't put out money at interest. These are things of mercy. And he wants those who are faithful. He swears to his own hurt, but he keeps his word. This is a faithful person who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. This is a faithful person whose eye, who, in whose eyes the vile person is despised, is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. What does he say? Who's going to dwell in that hill? talks about these weighty matters. He doesn't talk about those who tithe. He doesn't talk about those who maintain dietary laws. He actually talks about those who pursue justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so you see, this is not some logical conclusion that the Pharisees and scribes should have come to if they had studied deeply for many, many hours. These were direct statements. These are just very plain things that have been taught in Scripture, and yet they still violated this. They swallowed the camels even though they strained out the nest. we need to think about us today? What kind of camels do we have? What are the weightier matters for us as Christians under the New Covenant? What about what we preach? What's the weighty matter of what we preach? Paul answers that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, Paul said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, notice this, as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared, and He lists people that He appeared to. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Notice what Paul said about what he wanted to know among the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What was the weighty matter of Paul's preaching? What was the foundation of Paul's preaching? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the mercy that came through that. Now, did he talk about other things? Of course he did, and we need to talk about other things. He talked about congregational discipline. He talked about uh, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. He talked about the division and all the things that were going on there. He talked about baptism. But of first importance, the weightiest matter was that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we need to make sure that that is the weightiest matter of our preaching, lest we somehow believe that the weightiest matter is what we do. Oh no, brothers and sisters, the weightiest matter of our preaching is what God has done for us. And we need to keep that proper perspective. We need to keep it all in that foundation on that basis. What about God's commands for us? What's the weightiest matter of God's commands for us? Jesus answers that in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, somebody actually asked him, Verse 36 of Matthew 22, which is the great commandment in the law? That is, which is the greatest? Which is the most important? Jesus didn't say, oh, wait wait a minute. No, no, no. No, no, no. There is no great commandment. There is no primary commandment. They're all the same. They're all equal. He didn't say that. He didn't even bat an eye. He said, oh, that's easy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 demonstrates this very same emphasis. He says, the aim of our charge, or your translation may say, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What is the weightiest of God's commands for us? It's love, loving God, loving each other, loving our enemies. That's what we need to be doing. And that's where we so often fall short. We need to understand that this is the weighty matter. What about our response to God? What's the weighty matter of our response to God? Jesus answered that in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, the Pharisees gathered to Him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled. And we know how the story goes on, how they get upset about that and they question that. And in verse 6, Jesus says of them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. Notice that? They honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching His doctrines, the commandments of men. They were responding to God with their lips. They were saying the right things, but their heart was far from God. What's the weighty matter of our response to God? The weighty matter is the heart. Get the heart right. That's where God wants us to focus our attention. In fact, as this story continues on and the disciples are questioning him about this, he comes right back to that in verse 18. He says, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach? and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What does Jesus say is the important thing? The important thing, is the, the weighty thing, is to get our heart right with God. That's where our attention needs to be focused. That's where we need to be placing the emphasis. If we're not going to swallow camels, we've got to get our heart right with God. And then we'll strain out the camels and we'll strain out the gnats. But here's the really important thing that we need to see from this. Jesus says straining out the gnats won't make up for swallowing camels. Straining out the gnats won't make up for swallowing camels. You see, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus demonstrated the kind of camels that the Pharisees would swallow. There, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. One of the big parts of the old law about justice was taking care of widows. But they swallowed this camel of injustice took advantage of their widows. Back in verse 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is not mercy. This is cruelty. This is harshness. They swallowed that camel. He said they swallowed the camel of unfaithfulness. Look in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? What's the point? They had come up with these loopholes by which they didn't have to keep their word, by which they can be unfaithful to their commitments. They had swallowed that camel, but I tell you what, they were pretty good at tithing. They were really good at tithing. They would tithe of all their possessions, even down to the very spices, counting off ten leaves of mint, nine leaves of mint, one goes to God. Nine leaves of mint, one goes to God. Surely only the superly righteous would go through such a burdensome activity. They were good at that. But what Jesus is pointing out to them is that their tithing didn't make up for the fact that they were not following justice and mercy and faithfulness, straining out the gnats does not make up for swallowing the camels. And it won't do that for us either. I've known people that would argue tooth and toenail about how many of the assemblies they have to attend. But then on Monday through Saturday, they were conducting unethical business deals. I've known of preachers that could really shell the corn about immodest dress and, and, and <laughs> immodest dress, mixed bathing and dancing, but then we find out they're committing fornication. Straining out the gnats will not make up for swallowing camels. One of the places where I fear this, I know in my own preaching, I fear that sometimes might have become guilty of this. In so emphasizing what the Scripture says about the church and its pattern, it's almost as if I de-emphasize what the Scripture says about us as individuals. And for instance, I, I believe the Scripture demonstrates that the social gospel is not true. And that the church has no authority to be involved in in soup kitchens and and coat closets and orphans' homes and schools. That's not the church's job. But sadly, I think for me, for many years, that's really been just kind of a technical argument about the three means of establishing authority. But what's the weighty matter here? The weighty matter here is that in Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died so that he could separate you and me out to be zealous for good works. How many times have we preached from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 that it's about the individual and not about the congregation? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We may get it right about the congregation, but straining out that net is not going to make up for swallowing the camel of us not doing good works. If we're not doing good works... then we're straining out gnats while swallowing camels. Yes, those gnats need to be strained, but we must not swallow the camels. About ten years ago, I knew of a brother, a preacher. I tell you what, he was among the stalwart of the faith. He could really lay it down when it came to what the pattern for the church was worship and work and organization. He could really lay it out. He could debate among the greatest of issues of modesty and morality, dancing and swimming and all those kind of sermons. But it all came crashing down when his wife found a credit card bill racked up with debt for strip clubs and prostitution. After he repented, my buddy Max Dawson got to go talk to the fellow And he said, you know, here was the problem. I had my day self and I had my night self. My day self knew how to cross the I's and dot the T's on every scriptural matter you could think of. My night self was filled with immorality. And somehow I had convinced myself that my day self justified my night self. My day self made up for it. I was a part of a church that was getting it all right. So the fact that I was going to these strip clubs and prostitutes, that was okay. Okay it would make up for it. What's the weighty matter here? Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 20. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, What's the weighty matter? The weighty matter is that this is supposed to change us on the inside. Jesus didn't die merely so we could accomplish some forms and rituals correctly on the outside. He died so that our insides could be changed. The outsides will get taken care of if that happens. And sadly, even after repenting, this brother didn't change his insides and later just completely fell away from the faith. Left the Lord and left his people. Why? Because that weighty matter of putting on the new self didn't happen in his life. Oh, he got the externals right. He could preach it. If he was going to go to church, he was going to be one who did everything exactly right. But because he didn't get the internal right, the externals were wrong. We need to understand that we can strain out gnats, but it will not make up for it if we swallow camels. Straining gnats is tempting. Because it's so easily quantifiable. It's so easily measurable. Why do these Pharisees get bogged down in this? Because in order to tithe, all they had to do was be able to count to ten. But how do you measure when you've loved enough, or had enough mercy, or enough justice, or enough faithfulness? How do you know when you've accomplished that? It is so easy to get bogged down in the naps. Even when they're burdensome. Because it's easy to measure. Easy to measure. We like things that are easy to measure. We like things that are easy to quantify. We like to systemize and quantify and measure things. That's why we have five steps to salvation and five acts of worship and three ways to establish authority. Three works of the church we have. Why? Because that's easy. Those are easy things to camp out around. It's it's easy to lay those things out and get everybody to come around those. And the sad part is, is that sometimes... Folks who are immature camp out on those constructs that we have made and they haven't done the study that led to those. They end up defending things they don't even know why. And that leads to straining out nets and swallowing camels. I'd like you to take for just a moment the five acts of worship that we've talked about for so many years. Where in the Bible does God talk about five acts of worship? I'll tell you what God says in John chapter 4 and verse 24. John says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Why is it easy to hone in on five acts? Because it's easy to tell when I've sung. It's easy to tell when I've given. It's easy to tell when I've prayed. But it's not quite as easy to tell when I've been worshiping in spirit and truth. This point right here came to bite me in the backside this morning because I'm a little bit worried about this lesson. And so as we were singing, I'm I'm saying the word, and I was so thankful that... uh, that see pick songs i knew because i could sing them but in my mind i was going over the sermon and then i got to this point and i thought oh man because i was just going through the words that's not worshiping god in spirit and truth that's checklisting five acts straining out an ass and swallowing camels it's easy to measure and to quantify. And that's why it's easy to get stuck on that. i tell you what, I think about congregations that I've heard of that have had knock-down drag-out fights about what to do with the announcements. Because they're not one of the five authorized acts of worship. And congregations can come up with some crazy ways to deal with them because they want to maintain that five acts of worship thing. Which, to be honest with you, as I've said before, I'm not sure that that one is as, as scriptural as we sometimes think, that construct. But uh, when we come together, we do sing, we do pray, we do take of the Lord's Supper, we do give, and we do teach. I know those are things we're supposed to do when we come together. I- I've seen, I- I've heard about these churches getting these knockdown, dragouts, fights, complete with slander and gossip and backbiting and meanness and division. Why? Because we're straining out the gnat of five acts of worship, but swallowing the camels of disunity and division and meanness and resentment and bitterness. Something wrong there. I'll tell you why, because it's easy, it's easy to measure five acts of worship. It's not very easy to know exactly when I've treated my brethren who I disagree with properly. That's a lot harder to deal with. There's just a couple of passages that I think demonstrate this struggle. In Mark chapter 2, in Mark Mark. chapter 2, Verse 23, on one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Here they they were wondering, why on earth are they eating this grain? They're plucking this. They're they're, they're rubbing it in their hands. They're working. And the law said they should be stoned for working on the Sabbath. But Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, knew that it was lawful. I'll tell you what I want Jesus to do there. I want Jesus to quantify. I want Jesus to say, well, how many could they pluck and, 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 and twist in their hands before they were working? But that's not what Jesus does. Rather, he gives us a principle. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, how do you measure that? I want to hear 10. You can do 10 grains. If you do 10 grains, that's fine. If you do 11, you're going to get stoned. That's what I want to hear. That's not what he said. He gave a principle that we have to struggle with as we strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Luke chapter 10, one of the lawyers asked him about the greatest commandments, and Jesus threw it back at him. And so then he said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? I see, the lawyer wanted a quantifiable, measurable answer. My neighbor is everybody who lives within a mile radius of my house. My neighbor is everyone who is a Jew. My neighbor is everyone who is from my hometown. That's what he wanted, but that's not what Jesus gave him. What Jesus gave him was a parable that still causes questions for us today. I have never preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan without somebody asking me, what about those folks on the side of the road that uh, they might be wanting to, to mug me or something? I don't necessarily know how to answer all those questions. But I know there's a the principle, love my neighbor as myself. And I know that the, the Jesus answers, my neighbor is anybody I see who needs help. That's the principle. How do you measure that? What I'm trying to point out is it's always going to be tempting to us to strain out gnats and let the camels go by. Because the gnats are so much easier to deal with. But when we've strained out the gnats, it will not make up for swallowing the camels. But if we strain the camels properly, then we'll strain the proper gnats. I can't help but notice that. It actually seems kind of backwards. You'd think that just in this picture that if we had a a filter that could filter out something as small as a gnat, it'd get a camel too. But that's not the way it works here. That's not the way it works here. If we strain out the camels, though, we'll get the right gnats. I mean, think about it. If the Pharisees had focused on faithfulness, wouldn't they have tithed faithfully? But somehow they were able to focus on tithing and hadn't been faithful. Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus talked about love being the greatest commandment, why was it the greatest commandment? Was it the greatest commandment because it was more important, the others were less important, we had to follow it, but the others we could let go by the wayside? No, it was more important because all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. Why? Because it's the foundation. If we get this one right, we'll get the rest of it right. In Mark 7, when he said, focus on the heart, Was it because God doesn't care about the externals? No, it's because the heart is the foundation. When we get the heart right, we'll get the externals right. You see, the thing is, if we want to teach the whole counsel of God, we've got to give the right emphasis to the right things. Don't you think that if we emphasize worshiping in spirit and truth, we'll get the actions that we do as worship right? But you know, we can emphasize those actions We can sing and we can pray and we take the Lord's Supper and we can give and we can teach and we can check all that off and we can walk out of here and never have worshipped God in spirit and truth. If we emphasize the right things, if we strain the camels properly, we'll strain out the proper nets. So the point for us is we've got to make sure to get the right emphasis. We've got to prioritize the right things. It'll be a growth process. Certainly it'll be a struggle, and we'll have discussions as people are concerned about different things, and they're working on straining different things. But if we strain the camels properly, we'll strain the proper gnats. Jesus said there are some weightier matters of the law, and we better give them weightier emphasis. Because that's the only way that we'll teach God's will properly.